0: Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart bring you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1950, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay uh, entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? And, And right at the beginning of that essay, he acknowledges that his title for the essay, he said, had a frantically comic side to it because... The real question is not what we are to make of Jesus Christ, but what he is to make of us. Now, now we're barely three chapters into Mark, but we've already seen a number of kind of crises flare up, each of them centering on on really that, you know, not merely what, what we're to make of him, but what he's to make of us. And so, we're looking at this passage this morning, and there's a lot going on in this passage, but... But but I think it holds together in this way. We're looking at a story of two convictions about Jesus, which produce two confrontations with Jesus, which leave you with two choices about Jesus. Two convictions, which produce two confrontations, and you're left with two choices. The text begins with the the crowd gathering again, and and that ought to get us... um, you know, on the edge of our seat a little bit, because each time there's been a crowd in this gospel, there's been a crisis. Uh, and this time, you know, not only is there a crowd, but there's two kind of mini crowds, two little groups that emerge from the crowd. And each of them have got convictions about Jesus. Their minds are made up. Uh, the first one to emerge is Jesus' family. And, and they, their approach to Him looks very much like what we might call in our modern parlance today an intervention. Um, You know what an intervention is? An intervention is where, you know, somebody in the family has gone off the rails and the rest of the family kind of huddles up and goes, we've got problems here, Um, we all need to get on the same page, and we need to confront this person as a group. It's something like that, but it's actually more intense than that. Um, we find out, in fact, that they've not come to merely do an intervention. They've not come just to confront him. They've come to seize him. Uh, the, the, the literal language is here something along the lines of like, they came to tackle him. So that means they've gotten to the point. Jesus' entire family has together become convinced that Jesus is beyond convincing. Uh, and and that, that drastic measures are, um, are needful. So it's not, let's sit down and have a conversation with him. It's, let's get him and put a straitjacket on him. Now, that's a big deal. You know. To have your sanity called into question is no small thing, but it's especially intense if it's your own family doing that. And, and I think especially intense in, in a culture like this. Now Ours is a culture in which you know, identity is largely grounded in the individual you know, an um, in individuality, but, but for most places and for most times and most of history, including this time, uh, identity really was grounded in being a member of a group, especially the family, and so, so you come to this remarkable moment, you know, in this text, and I said a minute ago, when a crowd shows up, there's always a crisis, you know, and, and up to this point, the crowds have been rowdy and kind of untamed. They've even been threatening at points, but when Jesus's family shows up, notice everybody quiets down they they speak with one voice in verse 32 telling him you know your family's here and and that kind of reaction makes makes a point that that everyone defers to the family to the primacy of it because you know everyone would have would have kind of felt like you know it's not just Jesus's family showing up that's his identity at the front door and, and you know it's kind of reinforced by the way the family's actions are described. I mean, this is almost like missionary stuff. You know, they're sent to Jesus, they're seeking Jesus, they're calling Jesus. You know, and it kind of leaves you wondering, you know, will Jesus answer the call? Will he walk down the, the aisle and give his heart back to the family? And every expectation really is not only that Jesus will, but that he really must. So it's really shocking. When uh, Jesus doesn't answer, uh, he doesn't answer that call. Instead, he asks. He asks a question. He asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, that's the kind of question that's never asked because, you know, everybody knows the answer. You know... But again, I mean, Jesus, your identity is at the front door. And, you know, again, we, we might affirm identity in our individuality over the group, and, and they might affirm identity in the group at the cost of the individu- of individuality. But Jesus doesn't play that game. He just asks a question. And the question is inquiring into the nature of identity itself. You know, what's your, what are you building your life on? What's your, what's your identity in and, and as he does that, we just need to be clear. Jesus doesn't reject the importance of the family, the goodness of it. Um, we'll see this a little more as we get deeper into this. But, you know, later in the gospel, um, he, he will condemn the manipulation of the law to get out of supporting your parents, which some religious leaders were doing. He, he, he delivers a man from demonic possession and sends him back to the care of his family. He, he challenges unbiblical divorce. Um, he continues to love his own family to, to the very end of his life. You know, so, so, Jesus doesn't reject the importance of family. What he's rejecting here, what he's calling into question, is its ultimacy. That there is no greater ground to stand upon than that of the family. So, he rejects the idea of anchoring one's identity, of defining it by family relations. And and, and as he continues to answer, I I, want to pay attention not just to his answer, but to his actions. Um, Mark tells us that as he's answering, he's looking around at those who sat around him. And, And that looking around is important. It's very important. He looks around at everyone seated around him, and he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers, and, and this is expanded in another gospel. You know, forever, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my sister and my brother. You might remember a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was caught up in another controversy, that one about the Sabbath. And, and there's something like the same principle at work in Jesus' answer about the family, which I think is something like this. When he talked about the Sabbath, he said, just as man wasn't made for Sabbath, Sabbath was made for man. Here, Neither is man made for family, but family's made for man. Jesus is saying here that the very deepest bond you and I or any human being can share in life, what makes for real family, it's not about the DNA. It's about the doing of the will of God. In other words, it's 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 about living for the Lord. It's grounding life in what we would say in our particular tradition is the chief end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That affects the deepest relation one can have with another human being when you're in that together. And I want to notice something else about His answer that I think is really deeply important, vitally important, Um, not not so much focused on the doing, uh, but the being. And it really comes out just in one word. It's a profound word. Jesus says, whoever, whoever does that, Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Jesus, you know, he's really providing us here actually with some deep theology. Uh, a particular area of theology we call ecclesiology, the theology of the church. He, he's saying the deepest relation in life, a pos, the deepest relation possible in all of life, again, is, isn't in the DNA. It's in the devotion defined by a shared faith in him. And critically, the people with whom you share that relation are whoever. Whoever. It's to say that, you know, in, in church, we don't choose our people. God chooses our people. And, and, and if you want to know who he's going to choose for you, if you get a little anxious about that, and you kind of, well, what kind of people am I getting in league with here? Um, you want to know who you're going to be in church with, who you're going to be in a community group with, who you'll be praying with, who you'll be serving alongside, being served by? The answer is Whoever. And I realize, you know, it's kind of the least sexy topic you can imagine, but I think this is what is thrilling about church membership. Thrilling. It's the most countercultural way to live, and it is one of the most beautiful ways that people can live. It's what we're called to. Because, you know, while our conventional understanding of membership is to kind of join up with that thing that, you know, is comprised of people like us who are into the same things as us, the actual meaning of membership is the very opposite of attaching myself to my corresponding little slice of the demographic, economic, recreational, political pie. It's the opposite of that. Membership is a biological term in which each member joins itself to form a body. it's, It's a description of a radical diversity becoming a radical unity. That's what Jesus is affirming. That's what he's calling us to, and it's why, you know, the church and and this church is, this church and every church is is called to see that dynamic actuated and um, nurtured among us. You know, it's why we strive to make a place for everyone in the church, from longtime Christians to skeptical people. It's why we're tenacious to center on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not latch on to other agendas. It's why we have community groups and not affinity groups, okay? Because the gospel calls us to this community of whoever, whoever, whoever God's calling. Now, as is always the case, the truth Jesus gives us is is at the same time the truth that I think puts puts a test before us so that we should be thinking about our life together in light of this, you know? Um, like, is this dynamic operative in, in our personal lives? Is it operative in our church? Do we have friends and people that we're very close to that we could say, you know, the only reason, the only reason we're together, the only reason we've been brought together, we love each other so much, that, that, we're, that we're in this relationship is because of Jesus, because we've been integrated into his body. You know, it, it, asking ourselves, is this, a, is this a community open to all comers, or is it one which is kind of curated? Or there's some conditions to meet, you know, ahead of time before you can join in. So it's important to see, you know, Jesus is, he's talking about family. He's not doing away with that. He's not dispensing with that idea. He, he's doing something like the opposite of that. He's going, oh, you want to talk about family? I'm going to give you the deepest kind of family you, you'll ever understand. He deepens that so, that so that his people would enjoy that with him as its head, and again, this is a deep theology of the church, and the, and the Scripture has much to say about the church, and, and, you know, too much for me to say here, but just, you know, I can tell you one thing it doesn't say, and it doesn't say that church is that weekly event, you know, that we give an hour and a half of our busy schedule to during the week. It is, as Paul reminded the Ephesian elders as he tearfully departed from them, reminding them of what they were called to in serving the church, he reminded the elders, this is what Jesus has obtained with his own blood. The church. So there is nothing, and I'm not being hyperbolic here. I'm being as straightforward as I can with you. There is nothing of greater worth and of greater value, nothing more worthy of your time and investment nothing that your neighbors need more than the church and the body of Christ, where they will get the gospel and they will be integrated into this kind of family. And that is why Jesus speaks to this uh, as as so central to the good life. You know, I think to get a sense of how important it is, we need to look at another place where Jesus is, you know, challenges are kind of conventional family values in Luke 14. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a, rabbi way, a rabbi's way of speaking. Um, they speak this way. Jesus speaks this way, I think, you know, A, because it's true, but, but so that we would know he's making an important point and we'd never forget it. Like, do you remember that time he said something about hating our mother and our brother and our sisters and our, our own life and being his disciple? What was that all about? You never forget this kind of thing, right? Well, you know, the first thing to say is, this is the rabbi's way of speaking. It's hyperbolic in a sense. He's not encouraging actual hatred of your family. Jesus loved the fifth commandment. Jesus kept the fifth commandment. But he's making the point that in your life and in mine, there will be fierce competition for that which we hold most dear in our life. For that in which we ground our identity. For that, what, for that which we build our lives upon. And, it, and if we... So that, you know, if we are to live life as it was meant to be lived, Jesus is saying the Lord must be in the primary place. He must be on the throne. Your devotion to Him... Must, must be so full and unfettered that any other affection looks like hatred by comparison. He put it another way, you know, where he said you can't serve two masters. You either love one, you hate the other, you love, you love the other, and you hate the one. Now, if all this seems pretty intense, that is because it is. It is intense. But he, but he speaks this way so that we would know we would know grace more intensely in our life. Because when your greatest affection and loyalty is the Lord, that does not obliterate relationships. It, in fact, opens them up and enables them to thrive as they were meant to. Because when the Lord takes the primary place in life, everything else takes its proper place in life. And, and I think that's not felt more deeply than in any other area than in our relationships. I, a number of years ago, I read an extensive article about uh, the nature of abusive relationships. And I, unfortunately, I've lost this article. I keep trying to find it. I can't find it. But, but essentially, my memory is it made this argument that while there are many relationships broken by neglect, many, if not most, abusive relationships have at their heart something that's like the opposite of that, something more like obsession. So, you know, when a child, when a parent looks to their child as their everything, or when husbands look to their wives as their everything, what often results is despair and lashing out and anger and abuse because no human being can bear the weight of being anyone's everything. And and that same idea is true of career and achievement and money and physical health and reputation. And whatever our hearts are throwing our everything onto, right, none of it can bear the weight. None of it can bear the weight of building a life upon it. None of it ever could. So Jesus is being very gracious here. He is speaking to people like you and me who know that we cannot help but give our hearts away. And he doesn't even discourage us doing that. He just urges us to give them away to the God who instead of taking life from us, gives it to us. The one one God who can bear the weight so that everything else would take its proper place. So it's deeply gracious of Jesus to confront that in us, to call that out in us, to challenge the misplaced loves and the fraudulent loyalties so that we might receive not something less, not something worse, but something more, something better. What he calls abundant life. So that's the first confrontation. And, 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 and then comes a second. Another group emerges from the crowd. The first time it was family, this time it's basically Pharisees, teachers of the law. They've been dispatched from Jerusalem to, to, to check in on Jesus, but not so much check on, in on him because they've got their minds made up too. Um, there's no interaction with Jesus. They don't come with questions. They're not gathering information. They don't want to hear his teaching. They just come with accusation. And, you know, while Jesus's family was convinced that he was wrong in the head, this group is convinced that he's wrong in the soul. And the accusation has not so much to do with the person of Jesus as much as his work. And critically, You know, they don't accuse Jesus of being a charlatan. They don't say, you know, um, you appear to do great things, but they're not really great. They actually affirm, you've you've done great things. You've been healing. You've been casting out demons. But the kicker is they don't attribute that to the work of God. They attribute it to Satan, to being possessed by Beelzebub, uh, saying that Jesus has an evil spirit. Now, this, in my opinion, is the most vicious charge made of Jesus, not only up to this point in his life, but in all his life. And it marks a turning point in the gospel where Jesus ceases to just answer his opponents directly. He, he from here on out, he speaks to them in parables. No more will he say things like, the Son of Man was sent to, with the authority to forgive sins, or I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The, the time, it seems, for direct persuasion is over, and from here on out, he speaks in parables, and he gives one here. And and he he begins by illustrating how their accusation is actually logically absurd. You know, they've acknowledged he's brought healing instead of harm, and surely uh, they'd agree that the forces of evil can't bring forth good. They can only bring forth evil, right? That, That spiritual malignancy never brought spiritual health, that spiritual malevolence never brought spiritual good. Basically, evil can't do evil in, right? There's a scene in the movie, you know, this old Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar, where he's this conniving lawyer, and, you know, he's, he, he wins all the cases, but he does it because he's just such a great liar. And, you know, and then his son makes this wish that his dad would tell the truth, and the, the, and the, the wish comes true, and he, he has to tell the truth all the time, and he's in this big case in court, and, of course, he would planned to navigate this thing, as he always had, through deception, and, you know, he's in this trial, and he, he, he knows he can only tell the truth, and he, he's got to get out of it somehow, and the judge won't dismiss him, and he goes, well, can I just at least go to the bathroom? So he runs to the bathroom, and, and he decides the way he's going to get out of it is by beating himself up. You know, so he's slamming his head against the hand dryer, and he's, you know, slamming his head against the sink, and, and it's all completely comically absurd, right? Because everyone knows you can't beat yourself up. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's comically absurd that Satan would cast out Satan. Satan doesn't beat himself up. Hell never brought healing. Demons never brought deliverance, right? So it's got to be something else, which Jesus explains in this kind of multi-layered parable in which he speaks of a realm and a residence and a robber. Um, he begins with this realm. He says, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Look, civil wars don't cause kingdoms to thrive, right? They collapse. He pivots to, from realm to residence. He says, a house divided against itself can't stand. You know, families that are, that are in factions don't thrive. They, they're chaotic. And then he sums it all up with a little bit more of an extensive explanation about a robber. And he says, you know there's a robber who's kind of scheming and strategizing about how to get into the house of the strong man. The strong man lives in a house where he's in possession of all these precious things, and the robber wants to get in there and take those things from him. But because he's a strong man, this isn't the job for a weak robber. This is the job for a strong robber, a stronger robber. The only way to plunder him is for an even stronger man to come along to Overpower him to incapacitate him to take all his stuff, and, and the meaning of it is, is is essentially this: Jesus is saying the strong man in the house is Satan, and and, and Jesus, Jesus is saying I'm the robber. I'm, I'm stronger than state, Satan, and I've come to take all his stuff. You know, in fact, I think get a fuller picture. He's saying that you know Satan's something like a kingpin. who is was afflicting this place in which he's taken residence, where he's looted all the precious, valuable things that don't belong to him, and nobody could get to him because nobody's as strong as him. But that all comes to an end when the stronger man shows up to do him in. He's telling the teachers of the law that they've got this conflict all wrong. They've got it completely backwards. Jesus is saying, I'm the real strong man. I'm stronger than Satan. And when you see things like healing and deliverances, what you're seeing is me breaking into Satan's house, binding him up, and taking all his stuff, all the stuff he's stolen, namely human beings who have been afflicted and enslaved by him, tied up by him, captivated by him. So in other words, he's not on a search and destroy mission, he's on a rescue mission seeking and saving that which was lost. So these, these two wrong convictions that are brought to Jesus, one from his family, you're wrong in the head, the other from the Pharisees, you're wrong in the soul, you know, produce these two confrontations with Jesus, which he has addressed in this parable, and that leaves us with two choices about Jesus, which he presents in this really intense kind of way. And he presents it in this. Here's, the, here's how he presents the choice. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Now, this is one of the hard sayings of the Bible. I have a book in my office called The Hard Sayings of the Bible, and I think there's a chapter on this verse. you know, I don't, I don't know, and I think it's so hard because especially for Christians or for people who have a familiarity with Christian grappling with the idea that, you know, here's this faith predicated upon the forgiveness of sins, and yet there's this one sin that's unforgivable. It's game over. There's no forgiveness. You know, that's really hard to take because the great hope of the Christian is, for, is in the forgiveness of sins, And and so all of that makes this idea of an unforgivable sin very confounding. And and once again, I I just want to sort of frame this in terms of Jesus speaking very starkly because he's speaking of high-stakes stuff. He he brings his his own confrontation, but but critically, not so that we'll be crushed, but but in the end, so that we'll be comforted. So I want to look at the comfort in this hard saying of the Bible. And to begin to understand, you know, to understand this, we need to look at both at what Jesus says and also how he says it. Um, he, It was the custom of rabbis at the time to, you know, it's sort of similar today where I, I might say something and, and, and if we were in a particular kind of church, not a Presbyterian church, but, you know, certain churches, you might all say amen because what you've done is I've spoken some biblical truth and you've kind of run it through your grid and gone, well, that's true to what God's word says and I'm going to say amen to that. And they did that at the time at this time as well, a rabbi would teach, he would explicate the word, and the disciples, and maybe the rabbi himself would say amen. But here's the thing I want to notice here. Jesus' amen doesn't come at the end. It comes at the beginning. Amen, amen. Jesus speaks as one not seeking affirmation of God's word, but as, as one uttering God's word. And he does this in particular when there are matters of particular importance great importance, eternal significance. So he begins, in essence, by saying, I want everyone to know, as I, as I begin to say this, as I speak to these choices, everything you're about to hear is absolutely authoritative, which speaks not only to the truth of what he has to say, but the importance of it. And, and the first thing to notice, before we get, you know, to that one sin that can't be forgiven, and I'll get to that, Jesus speaks of all kinds of sins that will absolutely be forgiven. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. In Luke's gospel, it's put like this. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. Jesus is speaking of himself. Just let that soak in for a second. Jesus is saying that for God's people, whatever blasphemies you direct against me, whatever they are, they'll be forgiven. We don't use this word blasphemy much anymore. Um, It basically means the opposite of praise. It's speaking directly against God. It's mocking God. It's accusing God of things. It's dishonoring God. And Jesus wants us to know, surely, truly, 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 you will be forgiven all of that. And and I just want to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because if that weren't true, there would be no Christians. This place would be empty. Places like this, because every Christian is by nature and by definition a forgiven, and I want to say a recovering blasphemer. None of us here are innocent of this, of the sin of speaking against God in some way, of mocking Him, of attributing evil to Him, either with our lips or in our hearts. And vitally, Jesus not only says that blasphemies against him will be forgiven, he he shows it. I mean, think about how badly mistreated and mocked and abused he was all the way to the cross and even on the cross in the moment of death, looking at those who had been complicit in his murder. He prays a prayer, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. It's full of forgiveness. Truly, truly. Truly. You want to know how serious Jesus takes forgiveness, how deep it goes, how broadly it's applied? He offers it to those who were complicit in his murder. There was was forgiveness for them. We're we're accustomed to saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of the forgiveness of sins, but but I think just to get the force of it a little bit, tweak the language a little bit, maybe we would do well to say, it's a gospel of the forgiveness of crimes, crimes that we are all guilty of. Crimes against Jesus himself. So please see, as as Jesus unfolds this answer before us, there is a depth of grace and a determination that we would be assured in that grace. Now, with all that said, what what are we to make, you know, of this sin, of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as that which is unforgivable? Well, It's one thing to reject or oppose Jesus out of ignorance or even willfully should you come to the place of repentance and faith. But when Jesus speaks of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, of that member of the Trinity whose principal work it is to lead us to repentance and faith and to get us to Jesus in our heart, he's speaking of resisting that, a willful, steadfast determination to just reject the gospel, to never accept it in the first place. He, he's describing something like willful blindness so that you will never see, willful, you know, fingers in the ear, willful deaf, deafness so that I will never hear, you know, the patient who is sick upon the bed, refusing the doctor who's trying to administer aid, that you'll live. And so, when Jesus speaks of this sin, you know, of a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he's essentially stating the obvious, that there is no forgiveness of sins outside of faith in Christ. And he's saying, if that's your posture, you know, nothing can be done. That is the sin Jesus is describing here, the sin of unbelief, unbelief in him as Lord and Savior. And, you know, we've gotten you might look at this story and go, well, we've gotten quite a vivid picture of that with the religious authorities and attributing evil to Jesus and, you know, in their determination to refuse Jesus and coming, you know, with a conviction about him that he would be done in. But I want to, I want to see, you know, that Jesus in telling them this, telling them this hard truth is doing something remarkable. He is making for them room for repentance He's more than inviting them. He is urging them, don't do this. Don't refuse me. Repent. Receive me. Because the sin Jesus is describing here isn't, you know, just one single dramatic word that we may utter at some time in our life. It's a stance. It's a sustained opposition to the Spirit's work that would move you to put your faith in Jesus. And of course, there was one famously vicious teacher of the law who dedicated the entirety of his being to not only rejecting and blaspheming Jesus, but to wiping out all of his followers from the face of the earth. And yet, that teacher of the law, in his murderous pursuit, found in fact a savior who was pursuing him. He was guilty of exactly this kind of opposition. And Jesus pursued and gave him the grace of repentance of faith and was saved. Of course, this was Saul, who we come to know as the Apostle Paul. He, He described his former life to his protege, Timothy. And when you read that story in 1 Timothy 1, you're reading the story of a man who is describing that I was once locked up in the strong man's house. I was bound up until until a stronger man came along, pursued me, and set me free. And Paul came to know the depth of his crimes. He spoke of them readily, but he relished in repentance and rejoiced in grace and forgiveness. The only way he wouldn't have been forgiven would have been had he refused to repent. So I just want to tell you, and, you know, in my pastoral career, I've, I would say regularly I had people who've come across this passage and said, oh, no, (laughs) I think I've done it. I think I've committed the unforgivable. And and I just want to say to you, if you've been anxious that, you know, maybe you've done that, you've committed this sin, if if your faith is in Jesus, it is a factual impossibility. You, You are not subject to that anymore. He is yours. You are his. So Jesus is deeply gracious, and I want to I also see that he's confrontational. And, and guess what? The two, it turns out, can and often do go together. And what he confronts us with here is no different in substance than what, than what he confronted us with back in chapter 2, when he said those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's the gracious physician who tells us the hard truth about our condition, the reality of it. He won't play games because he is determined that we be healed. He is determined that we be liberated. And he warns us of the consequences should we refuse that from him. So that's the choice. That's the choice before us. If if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, you know, will you accept the reality of your condition? Will you... Will you put your faith in Jesus and and know healing and be set free and get out of the house of the strong man? Or will you deny him and refuse him and remain captive? And if you've already put your faith in in Christ, there's a good word for us here too. And that's to say, does repentance and faith remain operative in our lives? Is is Jesus occupying the, the primary place? so that everything else can take its proper place? Is our our life centering on him? Are we dedicated to his church, which he purchased with his own blood? Or, you know, have you seen that he's become a bit adjacent? Is he something of an accessory in in a life that may honor him with our lips, even if our heart is far from him? N.T. Wright puts this choice, I think, before us all pretty forcefully. He asks the question, how can you live? with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope was saying either of those things, condemn ourselves, and live in the shallow world in between. Jesus loves us too much to allow us to live in that shallow world. He calls us to faith in him that we would glorify him and enjoy him and grab a hold of an abundant life in him. So that as we come to this table you know maybe this morning we can kind of set aside the question at least for a moment that you know what am i to make of jesus and 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 revel in the possibilities of what a life might look like should he make something of us you know this table is a comfort for sure it is also a weekly confrontation it, it is to ask the question what are you building your life on where is your faith Where are you receiving nourishment and care? And what is sustaining you? What has taken the primary place that everything might take its proper place? It's a table that testifies to the choice, to the two ways, the way to Jesus and to life with him upon the throne of my life and with us dedicated to him and to his church or to another way that doesn't lead to life. So as we contemplate these things, let me pray as we prepare to come to the table. Uh, Lord Jesus, were it not for your ferocity, your ferocious pursuit of us, for your strength, for your determination to liberate a people for yourself, for your opposition to the kingdom of darkness, which had us all. Were it not for you, uh, we, would be, um, we would be lost forever. So, Lord, as we come to this table, we, we just want to praise you and thank you that you have not merely liberated us. But, you know, the table that we process to now is really a picture of the table that we will be seated at one day with you at our head. Lord, where we'll be with the church church will be there and where you'll look around and you will see your family, your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers because you have given us this great grace of giving us life in this life and life to come, setting us free. So, Lord, as we come, uh, would you nourish us here? Would you wake us up again, wake us up to these wonderful realities that in Christ we have everything In this life and in the life to come. So feed us here as we come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.